morning. We are in Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18. Chapter 18, and this morning we're going to be starting at verse 11. Of course, before we do that, I do have a quiz to give you all, as I warned you last week. Um, please keep in mind, before we even start talking about Revelation and what it's all about, well, before you start telling me what Revelation is all about, the purpose of us looking at the book of Revelation. Our goal as we come and look at Revelation is to see the picture of a beautiful, great Savior that's there. That's why we're here. Revelation is a place for us to turn our eyes to see a great Savior. Is that why you're here? Please keep this in mind, brothers and sisters. That's our goal. Now, as we go through the book of Revelation, we want to keep in mind what it's about. And last week I had up on the board some things that explained what it was about. I told you I would be quizzing you about these things. So I want to make sure we're getting what Revelation is about. So let us see, without looking at our notes, if anybody can remember what Revelation is about. I said it's a summary of Revelation, and we have two sides of three things. I don't care if you get the order wrong. But on this side, we started with kind of the main idea of Revelation, which is what? Christ conquers, right? That's kind of the... Just two words to summarize Revelation, Christ conquers. But then we specified by his blood. And then we added something else to it about us. We conquer by our testimony. Really, we conquer by his blood, but it's our testimony that's tied to that. So, we con so what's the book about? Christ conquers by his blood. We conquer by our testimony, our clinging to that blood. Then on the other side, we had another way we could say it. And it started out by saying what? What is it? It's a battle. There's a battle. That's, there's a battle. And what's the battle about? Worship of the nations. And who wins the battle? So it's a battle. Worship of the nations. That's what the battle's about. And God, God wins that battle. Now, I have two smaller things written up at the top. Just kind of important parts to remember. But before we do that, what was the main thing on the bottom that I put? We're witnesses. So there's a battle for the worship of the nations. Christ conquers, you conquer by your testimony. And really the main idea under the whole thing is you're witnesses. And then I give you two other little things that are really important to remember, and that is where we are. Where are we? And the world is? Okay, so that's, that's where we've been. And I want you to please keep it in mind. And maybe each week we can get a little bit better at remembering these things together. Now, these things are very unimportant because they're not really the real world that we live in, right? After we're done talking about this, you'll leave here and go back to the real world. So this is really kind of, this is just important for Sunday morning, Okay, this is, remember, Revelation is God shining the light into the cave. He's showing you the truth of what everything's really about. This is everything. This is everything. And so we don't look at this and go, well, that's nice for Sunday morning, and now I leave and go back to the real important things. This is everything, Christian. This is everything. You're witnesses. You're in the wilderness. The world is a brothel, and this is what God's doing. There's a battle going on. It's a battle for your worship. And the world is constantly pulling at you, saying to you, come, into the, come out of the wilderness and come into the brothel. Take a break from the wilderness. Come into the brothel. Come join in the worship of these idols. So with that in mind, we turn to Revelation 18. And let's see how this fits into that and to the picture of how glorious a Savior we have. Like I said, we're in 18... 18.11 through 17, actually 17a. Revelation 18.17 is one of the worst breaks in, in Scripture. It's like right in the middle of it, it should, the verse should have split, and they, they, the way they did it is terrible. So we're just going to be looking at the first half of the verse. So 18.11 through 17a, and it reads like this, starting at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth, 
weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Let me pray for us. Lord, we long for your name to be hallowed and for your kingdom to come and for us to see all around us the knowledge of who you are and a proper response to all that you are in our hearts and in the hearts of, of everyone else. And Lord, we know the way that you move in this world to bring your kingdom about and to bring about the proper response to you that is appropriate. The way that you bring that about is through the gospel, through, through the means of the gospel being heard. And so I pray this morning that as we look at this portion of your wonderful holy word, that we would see how it ties to the picture of your redemptive work for us, to the great Savior that you are. Open our eyes, Lord. We are so quick to sleep, to go back to, to the, the foolishness, the lies that Babylon teaches us. Wake us up, Lord. Remind us of the truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us imagine for a moment that you are sitting on the beach with a friend. And it's late in the day, and you're watching the sun as it begins to set. Are you imagining it with me? So you're sitting there with your friend, the sun's setting, and as you, you watch the sun set, you hear the waves crashing upon the beach, and as the sun just hits the horizon, the sky lights up in all these beautiful colors, light blue and, and, and pink and gold and yellow and the pink deepening into, into shades of reds and, and purples and, and then the sun just touches the water. Picture it. And right as the sun touches the water and starts to go down, the stars start to come out and they're shining, just brilliantly shining over this whole scene. And there's just this stream, this tiny remaining stream of light coming from the sun across the water at you. And as you look at the stream of light, a, a whale jumps up out of the water. And a big spout of water comes out of the whale. And in that spout of water, through that spout of water, a rainbow of colors as the sun shines through it. And just then, a flock of, of birds fly through the light into the sunset. And you're like, wow. And you turn to your friend who's sitting next to you, and they have this kind of smirk on their face that they look at it. And they go, that's boring. Like, that's, it's not just boring. That's one of the ugliest, most repulsive things I've ever seen. Now, if you want to see something beautiful, they say, take a look at this. And they show you this book they have open on their lap. And it's a book that has a title that's called Pictures of Sunsets. And it's, it's, it's old. It's, 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 it's in black and white. And, and the pages are stained and ripped and faded. And you can't even really make out what, what's on the pages at all. Now, if this happened you would instantly think that something is very wrong with your friend. And you would think this because you and every other human that has ever existed in this world understands that real beauty should be responded to in a particular way. We all know that if, if someone has something beautiful put before them that, that, and, and, and they look at that thing and they think it's ugly, something's wrong with them. And vice versa, if you had that same friend and you were, you were 
you, know, you passed a train wreck or you had that friend with you and you saw a story on the news about the suffering of children or some horrible tragedy and your friend said, wow, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You would be very concerned for that friend. You see, we, we, all, lo- we all long to see beauty and we all instinctively know that beauty should be responded to in a particular way. And we all know it's very, very wrong to label something that's beautiful as repulsive. And it's also very wrong to label something repulsive. Beautiful is repulsive or repulsive is beautiful. We, we know this. Instinctively, we know this. But, but here's the really curious truth about us as human beings, brothers and sisters. Humans, though we are creatures whose souls long for beauty, we are also beings who are not good at putting labels on the right things as regard to beauty and repulsiveness. Friends, humans are beings whose souls are not very good at judging where beauty can be found. Do you hear me? Listen to me say that again. Maybe this time I'll, I'll, make, it more of a, I'll make it more personal by putting it into a question. Okay? Humans are our souls that long for beauty, but are you good at judging where beauty can be found? Or are you like our friend at the beach? Your nose in some book of faded pictures of beauty while you miss out on the real thing. Now, why do I bring this up at the beginning of of this sermon? For this reason. In our text today are a people whose souls are, like yours, longing for beauty, but they have misjudged where that beauty can be found. And brothers and sisters, this is a grievous sin. Let me show you this. Remember what we're talking about here in chapter 18. I told you that chapter 18 is a funeral service. Remember that? And we saw last week that this is the funeral of Babylon, the great prostitute. And you all know by now very well that the great prostitute represents that system of idolatry in this world that dominates the world and tempts us toward idolatry. She's made promises to the world, promises that she could satisfy the souls of everybody who would come to her, and she told them that these promises could be trusted, but now she lays dead. Her promises have failed. And last week, as this funeral began, we saw the first of three groups of mourners who are going to come into this funeral service and present their lament. Last week, we saw the kings of the world, representing the kingdoms of the world, coming and presenting their lament. They thought she was mighty. They thought she was trustworthy. They thought her promises could be held on to and would give them what they want, but it's all been a lie. They see that she's dead. Now, this week, another group comes weeping into the service. This week, we find the merchants of the world crying when they find out that the prostitute is dead. But what the tears of these merchants is teaching us, it's not obvious at first. Okay? It's, at first, it's going to look like what the text is saying is that, is, is that there, there's nothing here really about this, all this beauty stuff I've been talking about. When you start first looking at the merchants, it looks like all the stuff I talked about about beauty has nothing to do with it. It looks like the reason why these merchants are mourning is simply because they're not able to make money anymore. Let me show you. Start at verse 15. Here's their lament, verse 15. The merchants of these wares who gained their wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. And here's their mourn. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And notice verse 11, which really spells out their their sorrow. The merchants of the earth weep for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. It's pretty simple. They're weeping because they're not able to gain wealth from Babylon anymore. That's true. But... The reason we're told this is to point us to something deeper. This points us to a truth. The fact that these merchants are weeping here, it points us to a truth about Babylon that God wants us to see. Think about it. The merchants are sad that they can't make money. But what we need to ask is this. Why can't they make money anymore? Or really what we need to ask is this. 
why were they making money in the first place? How were they making their money? And what does this tell us? You see, the text is using, listen, the text is using the weeping of the merchants at the funeral to show us something else about Babylon and the foolishness of, of idolatry. Okay? The, the text is using the weeping of the merchants not to just say, oh, isn't it sad they're not going to be able to make money anymore? It's, it's meant to show us something about Babylon. Why are these merchants weeping? What can't they sell anymore? Why are they sad about it? That's the point. So let me tell you what we're being shown, and then we'll look at the text and, and pull it out. What we're being shown is this. The reason that the merchants can no longer make money is because they no longer can sell their goods to Babylon. She's dead. Goods that Babylon used, listen, goods that Babylon used to create idols in which they thought they could find the beauty that their souls longed for. Let me say that again. Listen, what we're being shown is this. Are you listening? You ready? The reason the merchants can't make any money anymore is because they can't sell their goods to Babylon. Babylon, who used to buy those goods to create idols in which they thought in those idols they would find the beauty that their souls longed for. What the text is using these merchants to show us is that Babylon made idols. Babylon and everyone who dwelled in Babylon, dwelt in Babylon longed for beauty and they found that beauty not in God, but in the idols that they made. Not in the creator, but in the creation. And the merchants that sold these goods of the world are now weeping because they just lost their best customer. Babylon made the merchants wealthy because she purchased the goods of this world because she thought in those goods she could find the beauty her soul longs for. Look at the list of goods that the merchants sold her. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. So here are the goods that Babylon wants to buy so she can continue in her idolatry. Babylon thought that, if she, that she, could, she could get these things and use these things to satisfy her soul with. That the beauty that her soul, listen to my words, listen to this, listen to this, the beauty her soul longed for, the beauty her soul longed for, she thought they could be found in the idolatry of creation. This becomes clear in the most important verse in the whole section, verse 14. See, in between this list of what the merchant sold in verse 14, and I mean in verse, uh, right before it in verse 11 through 13, and the weeping of the merchants in verse 16, we have this verse 14 just popped in here. And it's really strange because it's just this unnamed voice that speaks in the midst of the funeral. Just this unnamed voice speaks up. And this unnamed voice tells us the heart of what we're being shown about Babylon in this section of the funeral. Look at verse 14. This is the heart of it all. This voice proclaims, the fruit for which your soul longed let me start verse 14 again. Make sure you're following what's, what's being said here. This is, this is, this is Babylon. This is the, the sorrow. This is what's the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. You see, this, this, is what, this, this is what the souls of those in Babylon longed for. For. This is, that's what this is about. The, the souls of those, and you see it right there in verse 14, their souls had a longing. They were longing for something. The souls of those in, in Babylon, just like every other human soul, have a longing. And this is what you have to understand. What they thought they could find in the goods of the world was beauty. The beauty that would satisfy 
their souls. Now, where does it say that? I just inserted the word beauty. It doesn't say the word beauty anywhere in here. It just says the fruit for which their soul longed for. The word beauty is not in the text. Well, actually it is, in a sense. Let, let me show you. In English, or at least in the ESV, what Babylon is seeking in verse 14 to satisfy her soul is described by two words. Do you see it? In the middle of the verse, the words delicacies and splendors. This is what they're after. They want to satisfy their souls, and they're after delicacies and splendors. Let me tell you something about these two words. These two words, first of all, in the Greek, they sound very, very much alike. But more importantly, they both have a common element as to the definition of them. Both words hold within their definition the idea of brightness or shining. Isn't that interesting? One commentary actually suggests that what we're being told here is that Babylon has lost all her bright and shining things. So she's lost. The first word, the one for the word delicacies, it's actually an extraordinarily rare word. But the second word, this word translated splendors, it, it occurs other places in the New Testament, actually even right here in Revelation. Let me show you. For instance, back in chapter 15, verse 6. Look with me. Go back to 15, verse 6. What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you that those in Babylon long for beauty. And they don't have it anymore. The beauty they, they sought to satisfy their soul, it's gone. doesn't say beauty. It says delicacies and splendors. And I'm trying to show you now, those two words actually refer to beauty. That's what I'm trying to show you. That second word there that we see right in the middle of verse 14 for splendors, it occurs other places in Revelation. For instance, in chapter 15, verse 6. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright, that's the same word, linen, with golden sashes around their chest. That, that word bright is the same word for splendors in our text. There's many more examples, even in Revelation, of this word translated as, as bright. For instance, go to chapter 22. Let me show you another. Chapter 22, verse 1. What did those in Babylon want? They wanted the bright and shiny things to satisfy their soul. The merchants are weeping. Why are the merchants weeping? They can't sell the bright and shiny things to them anymore. Chapter 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal. Same word, flowing from the throne of God and Lamb. So you see, these words, they carry the idea of bright and shining. Okay, what does that have to do with what I'm saying? Because I am saying that their souls longed for beauty. And they sought beauty in their idols. Not that they sought bright things. But brothers and sisters, what you must understand is that all through the scriptures, the idea of bright, shining, is so frequently tied to the idea of, you know what it's tied to the idea of? Glory. Bright and shining, all through the scriptures, is tied to the idea of glory. And friends, glory surely carries the idea of beauty. That which is glorious is beautiful. No one sees something glorious and says, wow, that's glorious, but man, is it repulsive. No, glory, listen, glory is the shining forth of the beauty of something. There, there's, an, there's an entire theology behind the idea of brightness and glory and beauty in the scriptures, the whole theology of it. And while we don't have time to entirely unpack that theology, it's not really hard for us right now to understand the concept that brightness and and glory and beauty go together. That's not that hard to, to grasp. Brightness and, and glory and beauty go together. In fact, we see brightness and glory, brightness and glory tied together like this over and over in the Bible, even right here in Revelation. Let me show you a couple more verses. Go back to chapter 21. Now what am I showing you? I'm showing you that brightness is related to glory. And I'm saying glory is like beauty. Am I making sense? Chapter 21, let me show you that this idea of shining and glory are tied together in Scripture over and over again. Something shining, something radiant, something light and glory, it's tied together. Bright and glory tied together over and over again. For instance, chapter 21, 
of Revelation, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having, look, having the glory of God. There's our glory. It's radiance. What's radiance? Right. Something shining. The radi- it's shine like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. We're told the city has the glory of God, and we're told it's radiant. Brightness. Or even more clearly, look a couple verses down to verse 23 of the same chapter, 21. And the city has no need of sun or moon to do what? Shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. Did you ever ever stop and think about that? The glory gives it light. Glory and light. You see the the connection here? So you see that, that glory and light and brightness, they're all tied together. And so we, what we're being shown is that the, the things that Babylon chased, the things that Babylon chased, these delicacies and splendors, they were the bright things. They saw them as glorious. They were, their eyes saw it, the twinkling of them, the allurement of the bright, the glory of that thing. Now, I, I've been using the word beautiful to talk about this because... As I said, the two things really aren't that much different or far apart. The glory of God is the shining forth of his perfections. It is his beauty, brothers and sisters. And so so this is my point. Babylon has found a substitute for this shining glory of God. They don't need God's glory, God's beauty, because they found their own shiny, bright things. They don't need God's. In their idols, they think they can find the bright, beautiful glory that will satisfy their souls. They have a souls that long for, long for this, this beauty. They want to see it and interact with beauty. And they think the labels that they put of beauty, they put it on the things of this world. The bright, shiny things, the delicacies, which verse 14 says they were chasing to satisfy their souls. Am I making sense? This is evil. This is evil. Profoundly, immensely evil. What, what P- Babylon is pictured as doing here, when they look at their idols and, and look to try to get from their idols a sight of the beauty that would satisfy their souls. When any person ever looks at something to get a beauty that they think is going to satisfy the longing of their souls, and when they refuse to look to God to see that beauty... It is the heart and center of evil. Do you understand why? Do you understand why this is so evil? Listen, to understand why this is so evil, you have to understand and and think a little bit with me this morning about beauty and how humans interact with beauty. Think about this. As I said, every human soul... Let's see if if you can follow me here. Tell me if any part of this doesn't make sense. Every human soul that has ever existed, longs to experience beauty and likes that which is beautiful. Agreed? Do you like beautiful things? Do you like to experience beautiful things? Now, of course, there may be exceptions to this in a you know, mental ward somewhere or a hospital or people who aren't functioning correctly, but everybody who's sane enjoys beauty. Not only do we enjoy beauty, I would say we pursue it want more of it. Now think about this with me, because at first, if you've, if you've never put any time to thinking about this, it's a very strange thing once you begin to consider how humans interact with beauty. You all, you all said you like beautiful things, right? Why? We all enjoy, we all enjoy, is this a fair word to say? We enjoy a sight of something beautiful? Do you enjoy the sight of something beautiful? Say amen as you're looking at me. You enjoy, you enjoy the sight of something beautiful. Yes? What is that enjoyment? What is it? Like, so think about it. It's not, it's not a physical pleasure, right? It's not like getting a massage or getting a hot bath. It's not a physical pleasure. What is it? It's not a physical pleasure, but yet it's very enjoyable. Why? What is the enjoyment? What is the experience of of, of Seeing something beautiful, what is that pleasure? Now, we might say it's a sort of awe. True, I think there's certainly a 
the sense in which we're mesmerized by things which are beautiful. But that's not unique to beauty. You can be in awe of a terrible accident or a natural disaster. That doesn't make that beautiful. So what is the enjoyment of beauty really all about? It's something I'm saying, it's common to every human being that's ever lived. It's something I'm saying all of us like, and it's something I'm saying all of you pursue, but what is it? I think the best way we can explain this enjoyment, the the best analogy we can use is this. To experience something beautiful is very much like tasting something good with your soul. Just like eating, it's kind of this, 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 eating something delicious anyway, is a pleasure. Yet even a pleasure, it's kind of hard to define. In the same way, when you see something beautiful, there's a kind of a tasting that happens, and, and, it, and, and your soul is involved in experience. It's, it's a tasting of the soul. That's what seeing beauty is like. But of course, the instrument that tastes beauty is not the tongue, or really not even the eyes, or not any sense at all that you have. As I was saying, beauty is not something that you taste with your tongue or with your eyes. Not with your eyes. Well, I taste it. No, it's not just with your eyes, because you've all probably heard something beautiful in your life, right? It doesn't mean the eyes. And it's not just the ears either, because all of you have probably experienced beauty without using any of your senses, maybe something you've imagined or read. Or... So beauty is not something that we take in with, with those particular senses. So ultimately, beauty is something tasted by the, the heart of man. By heart, I mean the biblical sense of heart. I don't mean your feelings. I mean the center of your will and desires and, and thoughts. That's why I use the word soul. I think that helps us maybe with the definition. So here's what I'm saying. To see something beautiful is to taste something good with your soul. Does that make sense? And you can see that in this kind of understanding of it, the way I'm defining it, of how we interact with beauty, I'm focused on the response we have to the beautiful thing. Friends, we, we, we have a response to things we think are beautiful. We have a response to everything that's put before us that claims beauty, like a moment ago when I said, here I am before you, and you all laughed. We all have a response to those things which claim beauty. We either respond by tasting and agreeing and saying, yes, that's good. Or we respond by tasting and saying, no, that's not good. And once you understand that, then you can see why it's so evil to have something truly beautiful put before you And you respond by saying, that's not good. Because what those in Babylon are doing, brothers and sisters, is with their souls, they are tasting God. And then with their souls, they're tasting their idols and they're labeling God disgusting and their idols beautiful. That's what they're doing. And friends, if we take one who is objectively beautiful, God, who is the very definition and standard of beauty, And if we take him and put him before the souls of a group of of people, and those people have souls that respond by saying, that's disgusting, it's repulsive, I don't like the taste of this, that says something about their souls. Just like your friend at the beach we were talking about. says something about them. Something's broken. Something's wrong here. This is the brokenness and the ugliness and the wickedness of those in our text, those in Babylon, brothers and sisters. They, listen to me say this, it's very important to, see, to get this, to understand even human nature. They have an appetite for beauty. Appetite, what do I mean by appetite? A hunger, a need. They have an appetite. They want it. They pursue it. If we continue with our, our food and tasting analogy, we can say it like this. They're built to eat and be sustained by beauty. But they have no taste for the beauty they were created to eat and be sustained by. So they have food that they are designed to to eat and be satisfied with in their souls. But they take that food and place it to the lips and they go, oh, that's disgusting. That's the brokenness of humanity. 
We are built to be sustained by and satisfied by the glory of God, his beauty on display. But we take that food and we put it to our lips and we find it repulsive. Instead, we like the taste of sin. We like the taste of idolatry. We like the taste of that which should be labeled ugly. Now, the most famous example of this in the scriptures by far that most of you probably know, but let's look at it, is in Jeremiah 2. Turn there. Let's just take a brief look at this. This idea that we are created for a certain satisfaction, but go to the wrong place to have it. Jeremiah 2. Those in Babylon have souls that long. Their souls long for beauty. They've looked in the wrong spot to get that beauty. That's evil. It's evil to have that which is objectively beautiful put before you and you to label it ugly. And I'm saying the human condition is we are a people who are built with a desire and an appetite for beauty, namely the glory of God on display. But when we take it and put it to our lips, we go, I don't like the taste of that. That's not what's going to satisfy me. There's something else that will satisfy me more. That's our, that's our sin. And the text that really best paints this picture, I think, or one of the most famous ones anyway, is Jeremiah 2, verse 12 and 13. Again, we've heard these, but look at this with me and how it relates to what I'm saying. Jeremiah 2, 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Two evils, brothers and sisters, that in verse 12, he says, are so absolutely horrible that all creation should be shocked. That's what he's saying. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. They can hold no water. That's the idolatry that these people are doing. See, they, they have a choice. They're in the desert. And they have a choice in the desert between a fountain of living water, clean, cold, pure water coming out of the ground, or a cistern, which is basically a mud puddle of warm water in the desert. And they look at those two choices, and they choose the mud puddle over the spring. That's sinful humanity in a picture. That's what we do. We long for beauty. We have a, a thirst, a taste, whatever you want to say. But we, but we have no, it doesn't taste good to us. When we put our lips to the water of God's beauty, it doesn't taste good to us. We like the taste of the mud puddle better. Can you see the insult this is to God? God comes to us and he presents to us his glory, his perfections on display. He shows us in, 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 in creation, in his law written on our hearts, and most clearly in his word. The scriptures, he shows us in these things his beauty. We encounter this beauty, but we don't find it enough. We think we can do better. That's what those in Babylon are doing. They are taking the goods of the world that the merchants sold. That's why the merchants are weeping. They have no customer anymore. And they're trying to get these things and, and use them to create idols that they find this beauty they long for in. Now, before you are too shocked at the foolishness of those in Babylon and those who have chosen these shiny things in the world over God to satisfy their soul's longings, we should stop and think about ourselves. And the question really that we need to ask is, are you any better at labeling what is beautiful and what is ugly than those in Babylon were? Are you any better at placing those labels on the thing that you think will be the beauty that can satisfy your soul? Brothers and sisters, you all, everyone in this room, whether they realize it or not, whether they think about it or not, you have a soul that longs for beauty, just like those in Babylon. You long for a beauty that would satisfy you, a beauty that you, you were made to see and enjoy. You have that in you. That's, it's our purpose our purpose, that God's glory would be seen by us and enjoyed forever. You have souls that will find, listen, know this is true, but every one of you, you have a soul that will never be satisfied unless that soul encounters that glory. Never. That's what you were designed for.
The glory of God is the food. The beauty of God is the food you were designed to be sustained on. But what about your tastes? When your soul tastes the beauty of God, what is the response? And when your soul tastes the so-called beauty of the idols of Babylon, what is the response? Which one do you label beautiful and which one do you label repulsive? Which one mesmerizes you when it's before your eyes? Which one, when it's before you, you can't stop thinking about it and looking at it? And which one captures your heart? How much is your soul captured by and satisfied by the beauty of God as compared to how much of your soul is captured by and satisfied by the beauty of the idols of this world? Here, church, is something to be grieved by. Here, church, is something to repent of. Here is something something still profoundly not right with us, church. What is the response of your soul to the taste of the beauty of God as it is presented to you? And remember, this beauty is most clearly presented to you right here. Here's the, the, the presentation of his beauty most clearly given to you in his word. How does your soul respond as you read and hear the word? Tell me, church, how does your response to the... If, if we're saying this is God's chief, picture of his beauty in this world he's chosen to do it with words in a book that's what he's chosen to do this is his chief he says not me says not the elders he said this is how he has spoken to you this is his word this is his picture to you of himself this is it you don't go to to you don't go to have some kind of weird experience somewhere you don't go to to, to emotions you don't go to you go to his word to experience your god as you come here to the thing that is the picture he clearest most clearly has in this world because listen some of you might say oh I, I can really respond to a sunset beautiful really moves me feels satisfying to hear a good song what about his word his clearest picture it's clearest picture. What's the response of your soul? Is it the satisfying thing in your life? In the scriptures, you have with you at all times a constant and seamless, endless supply of pictures of God's beauty. On every page, in every verse, it's there. You all have with you his wonderful attributes outlined perfectly given to you in a story designed to reveal the depth of God's glorious beauty to you. You have read the pages of this book. Everyone in this room, I believe, who's able to read has read something in this book. You've read the pages of this book. Some of you have memorized parts of this book, verses even more. You've all heard sermons about the things in this book. You've all listened to songs about the things in this book. And as you've done those things, as you've heard those words and read those words and sang those songs and memorized, what was the response of your heart? What kind of heart did you have as you encountered that beauty? That's what I'm asking. What did you taste, friends? Did your soul taste beauty there? Did your soul taste, did your soul taste what was good and you had joy? Or was your soul bored? Was your soul, as you had this before you, was your soul longing for beauty somewhere else? Can't wait to get done this so I can go here. Get that beauty I want. That's going to satisfy me. Do you see what it says about your soul? Do you see what it says about our brokenness? Can we not all understand the words of William Cooper when he penned these words in a hymn? He said, I hear, I hear, but seem to hear in vain 
insensible as steel. If nothing is felt, so he's talking about, he hears the word, he goes to church, he, I'm insensible as steel. If nothing is felt, it's, it's only pain to find that I cannot feel. I sometimes think myself inclined to love you, Lord, if I could, but often find another mind opposed to all that's good. Your saints, he's talking now, he looks at the people around him. Your saints, they're comforted, I know. They love your house of prayer. I sometimes go where others go. I find no comfort there. Can't we all sympathize with those words? Knowing what it's like to hear, but hear in vain. Don't we all know what it's like to hear and feel our hearts as insensible as steel? Can't we all see the many, many times God's beauty was put before us and nothing happened in our hearts? What did our soul taste when God showed us himself? Listen, surely we have, please hear me, surely as Christians we have new tastes. We don't deny this. As Christians we have new hearts that God gave us and we have new tastes and we have new desires and we have all begun to taste and see that the Lord is good. We all have done that. We've all begun to taste and see the Lord is good. That's surely why you come to church. To see Christ as a great Savior, you know there's a taste of something good in it. You've had the taste of it. It's not like, it's not like we've never tasted that the Lord is good. But see, that's the problem. We have tasted He's good. We know the truth, and we still turn to other beauties. What is it we say to God in those moments? When our hearts are, are dead to his truths, as all of our hearts sometimes are, when our souls seem to not agree that what we're being shown is beautiful, what are we saying to God? Are we not, in some sense, declaring that he is not beautiful? Are you not, in some sense, declaring of God not enough? That he's somehow lacking or missing some display of beauty that you need. And we say something about him as well when we do respond. Listen, maybe you say, oh, I never do that. Listen, when we do respond with love and awe and affection and desire to the beauty of the idols around us in the world, we say something about God. Friends, wake up to the truth about what you do. You, you, you sit on the beach and, and you look at the faded pictures in a book while the beauty of the sun sets before your eyes. You look at your betrothed, the one who is to be your spouse forever, and you say of him, the one who created every so-called beauty that you chase after in this world, came from him. You look at him and you say, not attractive enough, not desirable enough, not desirable as the things that you've made. You lack what I call beauty. And then you embrace another lover. You, you, you call another lover beautiful. We end up sounding like, like the Jews. Do you remember the Jews in, in, after they leave Egypt? They're in the wilderness, in the wilderness. And as they're in the wilderness, God comes to them and he gives them something to eat. What does he give them to eat? Manna. Do you think manna tasted good or bad? We're told it was like what? Honey. Right? They're given manna. And this is such a picture to show us the truth of what we're talking about today. They're given manna and at one point, they say this. We remember the fish that we had in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now, there's nothing to look at but this worthless food that we loathe. You see, they, they, have, no they have no tastes for heaven's joys. No taste for manna. They have taste for Egypt. Taste for what the world can give, but no taste for what God gives. This is the point. Is that you, friends? Are you like that? Tastes for what the world can give. Desperate for the shiny things of the world. Desperate for them, dreaming of them, pursuing them, longing for them. But you come to Christ and you hear of him and you find steel in your chest. You find souls that do not taste the beauty that is there as they should. What a, what, a, what a miserable condition 
What a sinful people to taste the Lord and not always and not perfectly see and confess and enjoy how good he is. Listen to me say this again. What a miserable condition it is and what a sinful condition it is to taste the Lord and to not always perfectly see and confess and enjoy the beauty that's there. And in our text, what are we seeing today? What we're seeing, brothers and sisters, is that those who trust in these other beauties around them in the world, they're going to be heartbroken in the end. Because these other beauties are lies. This is what we're being shown in the weeping of the merchants. Babylon's chasing after beauty and idolatry has failed. They sold, the merchants sold Babylon, what Babylon thought it needed to satisfy its soul, but it turned out it didn't work. The fruit, this is what the text says, the fruit that her soul longed for is gone from her. All her bright and beautiful things are lost forever because she trusted in dust and ashes to satisfy her. She trusted in dust and ashes to be the beauty that would satisfy her soul. These shiny things can't satisfy, brothers and sisters. They are not the food our souls are designed to feast upon. They are shells. They're they're hollow, ugly, empty shells. And the light of God's beauty one day will shine upon them and reveal the truth of what they are. And then what will those in Babylon do? On that day, the merchants of this world will have no more customers in Babylon to which they can sell their goods. So brothers and sisters, wake up to the truth. There is no beauty. There is no beauty in this world that will last, that can satisfy you. Wake up. Idols cannot give you the beauty you desire. Repent. Repent. You have repeatedly insulted your king. You have repeatedly called him repulsive. How? By the boredom you demonstrate to his beauty in his word. You have demonstrated over and over to him a great betrayal and injustice by being more excited about the joy and beauty and good you could find in the things in the world more than you could in the things that you found in God. The things, understand the things of the world cannot give you the beauty you desire. They're lies. Your soul was designed to feast upon the beauty that is found in God alone. That's your design. Nothing can replace that beauty. Nothing can be more glorious. Nothing can satisfy you. But you are a people who have committed these crimes against that beauty. You've looked at it and said, not enough. Every one of us has. And so wouldn't it be totally fair and just for God to look at you and go, you don't want to see my beauty? You don't like my beauty? I got a plan for you. How about we put you in a place forever where you don't get it? Ever. It's called hell. That's fair. It's fair if God did that. God looked at you and said, you don't find my beauty enough. You're mesmerized by all these other beauties. Fine. Let me withdraw my beauty from you. You would do that to any human being that you had a relationship with that talked to you that way. You would do it in a heartbeat. Why should God tolerate this? Why should God, listen, why should God this morning in this building, as you sit before the word and you take the sacraments and you sing songs, which is the things we're about to do, as God sees you do that with these hearts of steel that you have, why should God continue to display any beauty to you at all? And why should God not just have the earth open up under your feet and swallow you? Why should God keep his wrath from you when you call other things more beautiful than him? Consider our state this morning. Here we sit, and most of you in here know, still hungry, still hungry, with souls that still long for sustenance, for the food we are made for. We have all in here tasted that the Lord is good. We've all known, at least in some small way, what it is to have our souls taste and know his beauty. I know many of you know that and feel the the joy of just catching a glimpse of him. And we want more. We want this to be fixed in us. We want to be satisfied with him and have joy at the sight of him. We want to feast upon the sight of him. We want this glorious sight to shine upon us for countless ages. But why should this be given to you in light of how you've mistreated this gift? That's the question. Why should this be given to you? 
Why should God, in all of his justice and holiness, allow this picture of himself to put, be put before you again if you're going to treat it the way you've treated it? So now, understand how good your God is. Understand what your God has done for you. You who have come to Christ, when I say you have come to Christ, what do I mean? You who have come to Christ, what's that mean? Believe. That's what I mean. You who believe. Believe what, Canaan? As Savior. He's taken away the guilt of my sin. For those of you who have done that, listen to my sentence. You will not find your souls hungry and empty for all eternity. You will not. You will not even find that in heaven right now, this day, this morning, as I speak, you will not find that you are presently guilty of the sin of dishonoring your king with your insensible hearts. Even though you have not felt the joy that you should have, even though you've not felt the joy and enjoyed the sight of that beauty, Today, as one who believes, you do not stand guilty before God in heaven. There is no guilt on your part. If you turn to your Savior today, you who have so mistreated his beauty and not found joy in the sight of him, if you turn to your Savior today, you will find him smiling, fully pleased with you, and planning an eternity of joy and celebration for you as he forever satisfies you with the very beauty that you have trampled upon. And you will have this gift. Hear me, church. You will have this gift not because you demonstrated to God some goodness or some grand repentance and not because you fixed yourselves up and made your hearts really respond right and now you really love God and now you have a joy at sight of him. No, no. You will have this forever because he is merciful. How will such a mercy find you? What has happened? Let me tell you a beautiful story. I'm going to tell you a beautiful story, and listen to me. As I tell you this beautiful story, there's not a heart in this room, including my own, that will respond in the appropriate way. Not one. There's not one heart in this room of which God will look at the response and say, that was perfect. You got it. Not a one. And yet, this is beautiful. What is the story? This beautiful one, this, this king of, 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 of glory and, and brilliant, shining radiance, he did something unspeakably wonderful for you. He did this wonderful thing for you in order that you might have the beauty that would satisfy you that you don't even presently see. This king, what did he do? He took all of that beauty, all of that beauty that he had, he took it and he set it aside. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. This beautiful one came to us in the form of a servant as a man. And do you know what he did? Turn to Isaiah 53. Look with me at the words of what he did. Your heart won't respond rightly, but look at what he did. And he did it because your heart won't respond rightly. Isaiah 53. You see, if your heart responded rightly this morning, there's no need for Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 exists because we don't respond rightly. What did he do? Isaiah 53. Let's pick up right in the middle of verse 2. Look what it says right in the middle of verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. 
Well, what was he doing? Why would he empty himself of this beauty? Why would he be found as, as the repulsive, ugly one that no one would, would want? Why did he empty himself and come as a servant? Verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We thought God was punishing him. No, no, no. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment. Upon him was the punishment. Upon him, that word him there is really important because that word him there means your name's not in there. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. The truth is, verse 6, all we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. Verse 6 is just stunning. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, this is why you will have beauty to enjoy forever. Not because you had a right response to him and not because you fixed yourself and made yourself love him and appreciate him as you should. No, no, no. But because he willingly took your place and suffered the penalty for your lack of joy and love. He was punished for your sin and my sin. And so now we escape that punishment. He loved you, and so he set aside his beauty and came as a servant and paid for your sins, including your sin of trampling upon his beauty and not responding to it as you should. That's included. Can you conceive of a more glorious and beautiful thing than this than he did? Can you imagine a greater, a greater love than this that was shown to you in this humble act of service? Christ was cursed he was made to suffer as we should suffer without the beauty of God. And you know, as he hung there upon the cross and the Father turned his face away, he suffered what it is that should be our hell. He suffered in those hours how it is. I do not understand how it could be, but he suffered that which is the equivalent of our eternal separation from that beauty forever. Christ suffers for us because we failed. He's punished for our lack of proper response to the beauty of God. And not only this, but Christ lived a life, as you all well know, responding perfectly to the beauty of God. And now he takes that perfect response and he credits it to you. So in heaven's eyes right now, heaven looks at you and says, there's, there's no record of the fact that they have not responded rightly to the beauty of God. There's no record. And in fact, the only record I have of them is a re response of perfect obedience and joy to the Father, because Christ's obedience and Christ's response is credited to you who believe. Christ credits you with both his payment for the sin that you committed and the obedience that you needed. So, so church, come, come. You who hunger for beauty, listen, you who hunger, and that's every one of you, and you who, who settle for what's not beautiful, and that's every one of you, come. Come and hear the truth of your good God. He has secured for you the beauty you hunger for, and he will feed you with this beauty forever. You who settled for the fake beauty of this world, you will receive the true beauty of Christ as your reward. You will no longer go back to Babylon. You'll be delivered from that city, and you will be in New Jerusalem. And the city of New Jerusalem, we hear in Revelation 21, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. See, it's in these truths. It's in these truths that we, we taste. And we see the Lord is good. However so small it is. However so broken it is in this world. We this morning, it's in these things. We see that beauty, do we not? And even, and listen, and even if we do not, and even if we do not, and none of us do as we should, none of us is responding as we should, even if we do not, yet we will feast upon that beauty forever because our feasting upon it is not dependent on our response to it today. 
It's dependent upon what Christ did, not upon what you do. It's not because we are good enough and that we earned it. It's because Christ was good enough and he earned it for us. So come, rest. Come, church, come, rest in what Christ has done for you. No more being tossed about. No more waves of doubt and and turmoil. Come rest in what he's done for you. He knows the weakness of your soul. It's for this reason he died for you. And you are now to put your trust in his work alone. Your hope is in him and his complete saving work for you. Your hope is not in you. It's in what he has done. And he is, brothers and sisters, objectively beautiful. Objectively beautiful. How we long for the day that we, those of us in this room who are Christ, will stand side by side in his presence and taste and see that the Lord is good in the fullest measure that we were designed to. In the meantime... We are left with shadows and sacraments, which are good. And so we come to the supper now to rejoice in and remember what God has done for us. Are there any questions about anything I've said? Does it make sense to you? Let's come to the supper. Thinking about what Christ did in emptying himself for us to serve us. And let's remember that this supper is open to every one of you. I'll let you settle. Listen. The supper is open, and it's important we get this right. The supper is open to every one of you who has turned from your sin. As imperfect as that turning is, you've turned. I don't want this, Lord. I don't even not want this the way I should not want this. Help me not want this. Fix me. You you turn, you come to him, and you believe. You believe he is the savior of sinners, of any sinner who comes, including the sinner. If that's who you are, this table is open for you to come as a child of God and celebrate what God has done for you. If that's not who you are, we do ask that you would let the elements pass and not partake. But there's no reason why this morning every one of us in this room could not partake with joy understanding what Christ has done for us to earn this gift for us, to wash away our sin and leave us guiltless and to secure us a place with him forever. It's in light of that that we come to the table, we take the elements, we look upon the elements, things that we didn't produce, things that he did for us, and we, and we, and we now come together and we receive the grace of God as he puts these elements in our hands to say, it's by this means that you are made right. Let's come to the supper and celebrate together.